Longtime readers know I enjoy my bike rides during the summer. I used to live in Sherwood, and my main route was always down Laboo Road. There's one main reason I enjoyed this route. Towards the end of the road is a fantastic downhill. I would strive to get up to 50 miles an hour, but only could get to 48 no matter how hard I pushed. I think it has nothing to do with me, and it has everything to do about the bike's incorrect gear ratio. It's always the gear and never about the person. The other side attraction on this route is a unique house I continuously gawk at. It is a vast house and unique on so many levels. The view from the backyard has to be breathtaking. I always hoped it would be up for sale. I wanted to attend an open house and satisfy my curiosity about the interior. You know, and if this was the actual newsletter, I'd have a picture for you to see, but this is just audio, so uh, sorry. Down the road a bit from this house are vines. During my bike ride several years ago, I never gave much attention to this plot of land. Still, when I decided to visit a laurel vineyard towards the end of January, I took a pleasant journey down memory lane. While we are here on memory lane, let me share a story about David, the owner of a laurel and his discovery of the property. This excerpt was taken from the wine right. And the question was, tell me about the laurel vineyard site. David's answer. This was a farm not too far from where I lived. I would take long rides in the hills of the Shehalo Mountains. I used to stop at this field, drink my water, and watch the sunset. The property had a nice southwest exposure. It was at about 700 feet in elevation. I just thought it would be a nice piece of ground. I had worked on farms growing up as a kid. The soils looked good to me. When I decided to buy some vineyard land, I hired Mike McLean. Mike was a realtor who specialized in vineyard properties. I wanted a Class A site as good as anything that could be found in Oregon. We drove from Eugene to Forest Grove over time, looking at properties. We found some sites that looked pretty good. One in the Eola Hills area was nice, but it was a bit larger than I wanted to handle. We had been looking for about a year when I told Mike about that land I would bike past. I had him look at it, and he agreed it looked pretty good. We had some soil tests done. It was a Class A site. It had everything we were seeking, but it wasn't for sale. The owner was in his late 80s and living in California. I made him some offers, and he turned me down twice. He accepted my third offer. We did the whole deal over the phone. I started planting here in 1999. It is a remarkable sight, and biking through this area is just absolutely spectacular. The reason I wanted to visit a laurel was twofold. First, I couldn't believe I hadn't visited a winery so close to me, and secondly, they opened up their new tasting room back in December. Pulling up and seeing this unique building was stunning. Late in the summer of 2019, ground was broken on the new tasting room. Brett Fogelstrom helped design, plan, and build the tasting room. With it being January, tastings were still outdoors, but I was toasty warm. Brianna, who grew up in Texas, was hosting the tasting and did a fabulous job. She started working at a Laurel back in August and is loving it. We got to talking about something. Maybe it was the fact I was a single child or something else. But she is the oldest of six siblings. She came from the world of beer and, and is having a blast visiting different wineries. The winery that stands out the most for her right now is Blizzard Wines and their GSM blend. She poured me the 2018 Chardonnay. I spent 8 to 10 months in oak with 10% new French oak. As I was checking out the Chardonnay, she started to tell me the winemaker is Tom. He found the property while training for an Ironman. O2 was the first vintage for a Laurel, and in 2010, Tom took over as winemaker. 
Now, here's the thing and a bit about my process for these newsletters. Most of the time, I go into these tastings pretty blind. I want to be shocked and awed. I want to have rose-colored glasses during the whole tasting. After my visits, I dive deeper to get the juicy nuggets. So far, this process hasn't bit me too much in the Batutsky. When I looked more into the winemaker for a laurel, it was none other than Tom Fitzpatrick from Elevate. My heart gleamed with joy. Tom, France, and Four are a joy and hold a special place in my heart. I would do my level best not to crush too much on Tom, so please forgive me if I go a little too far. When I first met Tom, my first impression was his passion for terroir. If you don't know, terroir is a timeless topic. It's more extensive than the land where the grapes grows. It is an ideology on every conceivable plane for wine. Terroir is a worldview. Tom does way more justice to his belief of terroir in an interview with the wine right than I could possibly convey here. The wine right. Did you already have a passion for terroir before you went to Burgundy, or did you acquire it there? Tom. Great question. I had a familiarity with the idea beforehand. We talked about it. Even at Davis, there were discussions centered around whether it even existed. I walked away from my time in Burgundy feeling like terroir was the center point of wine in general, and Pinot Noir in particular. At its core, that's what Pinot Noir is all about. In hindsight, my master's thesis indicated the power of terroir. I didn't set out to prove that. My thesis looked at four different clones of Pinot Noir on different rootstocks across some really diverse sites in California. My professor was interested in measuring phenolics in fruits and wines. I was interested in determining the influence of clones and or rootstocks on the phenolic profile of Pinot Noir. I chose those diverse sites partly to assure that the driver was really clone or rootstock selection. The takeaway turned out to be that clone and rootstock did not have much of an influence on the level of tannin or phenolics in general. Environment was a driver. That spoke to me of the power and influence of terroir. Tom's terroir passion follows in his winemaking prowess outside of Pinot. When I finished my tasting of Chardonnay, Brianna told me there was a Riesling planted on site, and in 2020, more Riesling was planted along with Nebbiello. Tom does a Ridgecrest Riesling under his Elevé label, and it's gorgeous. The history of how Tom got into winemaking is easily another newsletter. I had a 2017 Estate Pinot, a 2018 Estate Pinot, and a 2018 Reserve Pinot for the remainder of the tastings. It was nice to have a small vertical of the 17 and 18 Estate side by side to compare. I enjoyed the 18 over the 17. Both of them are age-worthy without question. The Reserve had darker red fruits on the nose and came out on the mid-palate with a nice, lingering finish. I talked with Brianna about the Justina, and she mentioned there are only 50 cases of this wine produced, with 80% new oak with silky, dark red fruits. I went home with a bottle of the 2017 Justina, and here's what I thought of it. The 2017 Justina from a laurel speaks to Tom's masterful craft of winemaking. I melt when I get dark red fruit on the nose. Upon entry, this wine immediately grabs your attention and doesn't let go until the long finish entices you for another taste. After sitting outside for a little bit over an hour, my toes started to chill a bit, but I envisioned what it would be like sitting out here on a Friday night during summer with the sun setting in the background. Take a look at these views. And I know, this is audio, so you can't actually take a look at the views. Holy cow, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous. There's plenty of patio seating. Can, can you imagine? Having hot, wood-fired bread with some superb pinots sounds absolutely decadent to me. 
Summer just can't get here soon enough. I know you will visit soon, and when you do, let them know that AJ sent you. And if you see Tom, say hi for me. With gratitude, AJ.